Mindset is a critical component of success, not just on a personal level, but your mindset, the way you think about and approach problems can have a major impact on your results and those around you. I'm Michael Lauren Prue, host of the Navair Airwaves podcast, and today we're going to do a little self-reflection and talk about how using your modern brain and practicing appreciative inquiry are key to scaling organizational success and supporting employees. Joining us is Lieutenant Commander Jocelyn Lieberg, Integrated Product Team Lead at PMA 242, to continue our discussion on behaviors for a winning culture. Welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. You recently had the opportunity to sit down with Navair Commander Vice Admiral Carl Chebby. Tell us what you learned and what you think he learned from the conversation. So I'll start with your second question about what I think he might have learned. Part of our conversation centered around lasting change. The example that he gave was of a major change was a ship turning around in order to deal with a man overboard situation. And what we kind of ended up talking about was that that was a response to calamitous event, that those changes that were made in the personnel on that ship and in its physical location in the water aren't sustainable for a long duration. And those are the, actually the kinds of changes that we need at NAVAIR, the kinds of changes that are sustainable and lasting and help us do our jobs better at a exponential rate. So first question he asked me when I came in was, you know, who's, who sent you to the principal's office? How come you uh, are here? And we talked about that, wanting to know who found me. I had an answer for him at the time, but as I thought about it a little bit more, the answer to that question kind of changed. I've been given a lot of opportunities that maybe others wouldn't have seen me as right for. And, and the first one that I can really point to that, that emphasizes that was my J.O. skipper, Beavis Bixby, was willing to kind of go out on a limb for me and write a letter to a board for test pilot school. Because he was willing to do that and support me in my goals, I've gotten the chance to do a lot of amazing things and go to test pilot school and be out at VX-31 and come back here and work on unmanned aircraft and and now I'm working on weapons. It's kind of amazing everything that that one vote of confidence in me has given me an opportunity for. I learned from Admiral Chebby was a particular resource that he emphasized and that was Dr. Steve Robbins who really has gotten into this discussion on ancient brain versus modern brain. And that's something that I didn't know anything about until he told me about him. And I got really interested and and read a lot about what he's done and watched a lot of his podcasts. I definitely want to jump further into learning about what it is when you say modern brain versus ancient brain. But I think it's also important that we learn a bit more about your story. What led up to your decision to, to join the Navy and seek out these opportunities you mentioned? So the Navy is kind of my family business, military in in general is, but the Navy specifically. I'm a third generation attack aviator and I'm a second generation AEDO. My grandfather flew SPADs, my dad flew A6s and and I flew F-18s. My dad was also an AEDO and that's kind of how we came to be at PAX. We moved here in 99 when 235 was cornfields and a brand new Walmart. My brother's EOD, pretty much my entire family, is is military in some facet. But that kind of became a natural choice after getting through high school. I did ROTC at Penn State, and uh, that led me to go fly F-18s. 
and getting to be exposed to what we do here at Navair at such a young age kind of made me interested in test and in acquisition when we don't get a lot of exposure to that in the fleet. So when it came time to decide what I wanted to do after my JO tour, I decided I wanted to apply for TPS. And I was lucky enough to have a skipper who, while the path that I wanted to take was not his, he supported me and was willing to go out on a limb and say, like, I will advocate for you and, and what you want to do. And here's here's the letter that you need. So that is such an interesting story. I want to get back into those words that you use, that modern brain versus ancient brain. Explain to me what that really means. So I'll preface this with I am still learning about what Dr. Robbins is working on. But what I find most interesting is that their ancient brain is where we are most of the time, like upwards of 80%, according to Dr. Robbins, of our time spent is in this passive pattern-seeking mindset. It's the, the how you got to work without really noticing anything that's going on around you. The modern brain is really more about mindfulness. And, and Dr. Robbins goes into these three R's of, of mindfulness and how we can engage that further. So what are the three R's of mindful engagement? How do we become more mindful and use our modern brain more? So I'll explain what Dr. Robbins says and what I've read in that those three R's are are recognition, which is the practice of self-awareness. Reflection is when we pause to consider how many solutions are possible. And our response is a question of whether our answer elevates the group and not just yourself. It's positive intent. And the way that I've started to think about this is more in terms of a flight brief. We prepare the brief. We're being self-aware for what we're preparing to go do. We brief the flight. We fly the flight. And then we debrief the flight. And those last three are kind of a combination of that reflection and response. When we debrief our flights, we are actively considering what we did well and what we did poorly. And it's done in such a way that it really elevates the group and that everyone is brought in to learn from each other's successes and mistakes within the context of the flight that you just flew and how that flight reflected what your original intent was in the first place. To me, we could probably learn a lot from how that process goes here in our day jobs, just as our fleet aviators do when they do their day jobs. So yeah, I think when you say a flight debrief, it's a great example of taking those three R's and putting into action and something that certainly resonates with our naval aviation community. How can a modern brain way of thinking help us challenge assumptions and create solutions? really see opportunity instead of a problem. There's an aviation mantra of no fast hands in the cockpit. And that's one that I think speaks to this mindful nature of, I need to pause to reflect sometimes on what I am doing. What am I about to do? Is it the right course of action given the situation that I'm in? So much of what we are aiming to do requires such deep critical thought that we can't rely on pattern following to 
accomplish our goal. So really, it's about challenging the normal way of doing things, challenging those processes, challenging those patterns, so that when we see something new or different that challenges those assumptions, we're ready to go. It's really back to the example that Admiral Chebby brought up during our conversation of how we respond to calamitous events. We, we tend to do that very well. We throw our best and brightest at a problem. We work all hours. We spend every ounce of every resource we can towards solving this problem. And more often than not, I think we're successful in the short term. We make change in response to a calamitous event, but because it's not sustainable, we end up coming down again. What we really ought to be considering, and that's and this is where Dr. Robin's advocacy for that modern brain comes into play, is we need to figure out what that looks like on a day-to-day rhythm, how we create sustainable, lasting change, no matter whether it's a calamitous event we're responding to or not. When we mindfully engage within our processes, we can respond to both our day-to-day work and calamitous events with the same mindset and the same process. And that just unleashes a sustainable change in our entire organization. So continuing on that thought, how does our modern brain help us overcome aversion to risk? That to me was one of the most interesting parts about Dr. Robin's work. The ancient brain is by nature pattern seeking. It's it's naturally doing that risk versus reward acceptance. We tend to hide behind pattern seeking as a paramount methodology for inquiry. We approach a problem and we say, oh, this doesn't look the same as it always has before. Is this is this a threat to my ancient brain mindset, I have to think harder about this. And my brain prefers to be in its ancient state. That's normal. It requires less effort. And it's not casting fault on any one of us that's helpful to us on our day-to-day business. It's, it's why I don't have to think about every single step I take to walk across a room or, you know, cook something. I can do that without thought. But The idea that Admiral Chebby and I are working on is that we need to overcome that ancient brain mindset and live more often and work more often in that mindful modern brain state. How does our modern brain lead to appreciative inquiry? So I think appreciative inquiry is kind of a strengths-based, really positive approach to leadership development and organizational change. To me, it's about finding what's working well for us and teaching others how to do it. It's scaling the learning versus, you know, focusing on these minutiae, focusing on who the problem is, why this person or this process doesn't fit my norm. It's that ancient brain trying to take over. And what we really ought to be doing is embracing appreciative inquiry as a growth mindset. It's hinged on this idea of using the work that we have to do to develop our people and to teach them the skills that they need to be successful as individuals and as to be greater contributors to our overall mission success. So by way of example, my skipper likes to use this one. He 
was helping one of our IPT leads develop a brief to give up to ASNRDA level. The IPT lead had great technical knowledge on the, the questions that were being asked, but had less experience with briefing a higher level individual. Skipper was new to the organization, had less of a technical understanding at the time, but had a much better understanding of the kind of questions that leadership at that level might be asking. And instead of tossing it back and forth over the course of weeks, they ended up just sitting down together and building the brief with each other and were done in a couple of days instead of weeks. It, it was using the work that they had to do. They had to give the brief, but to teach each other things that they didn't know about our program and how to communicate best about it. Learning from each other and building that community of, of success really fosters that appreciative inquiry, really fosters that positive approach to organizational change. Speaking of that organizational change, how does appreciative inquiry help us identify organizational strength and best practices? And how does appreciative inquiry foster innovation? To me, it, it instantly fosters ownership and inclusion. When, when we have a problem, it's kind of human nature to, to try and deflect or, or come up with reasons why something isn't working. But when we adopt that positive mindset towards it, and identify things that we want to keep doing because they're actually valuable to us, that really brings people in a lot more readily. If we set a North Star to go after and people get a lofty goal to shoot for, that that's really inspiring in a lot of cases. In PMA 242, we're actually trying to do this in the form of a, a BHAG, and I'll credit Jim Collins for that term, but the, the BHAG is the big, hairy, audacious goal. It's the clear and compelling thing that you're trying to achieve. It's, it's the moonshot. It's the idea of driving west. I at least know I'm going in the right direction. And maybe my westward drive will take me down to Arizona. Maybe it'll take me to Colorado. And maybe it'll take me through Montana. But the point is I'm going in the direction I needed to. And how I get there is up to me. It, it's up to us as individuals to decide, not up to any one person to dictate. That stifles that creativity that I think we all could use a little bit more of. So once we identify what's working, why is it so important that we share that knowledge? So in the context of our PMA 242 BHAG, our big, hairy, audacious goal, we're trying to IOC one of our weapons a year early. Part of the reason that we're trying to do that stems from the idea that we're going to learn a lot along the way. We're going to figure out how to do this. So when the next weapon system comes down the pipe that is needed by the fleet urgently, we've done this before. We have started to break the patterns that we've been so ingrained into and actually stumble into something that's a little bit more familiar and easier to do. It's the starting point for walking west towards, towards that North Star. So certainly our behaviors as individuals and how we approach problems impacts those around us. So on a personal level, why is it so important that we take time to perform self-analysis? 
and how does examining our values, priorities, and gaps in our life help us grow? I think it's at its core, it's back to that dual bottom line organization. It's focus on our teammates and ourselves and focus on missing execution. And what that comes down to is that self-analysis really is 50% of it. it. It's just as important as accomplishing the mission because it leads to future mission success. We are the organization to which we belong. So when we, you know, have successes, there are teams' successes. When we have complaints or, or negativity, that's ours to own. And when we teach other people about our successes, when we teach other people the, the way that we achieved our goals and allow them to walk with us as part of our community, that creates lasting change. And, and that's what really helps us grow. And once we've done that self-analysis, why is it important to set priorities? And what are some ways we can set or make clear our priorities to others? I got this tidbit of advice about a year ago, and I've been trying to live up to it. And it's that I want my calendar to reflect my priorities. I want the things that are on my calendar that are taking up my time to be things that are going to make me successful and that are going to lead to mission accomplishment. It's the idea that was shared with me of, of doing something that is bigger than yourself every day and doing something that's just for yourself every day. And doing something that's bigger than yourself, to me, that's, that's what are you involved in within our organization in terms of growing other people. What are you doing in our community to bring others into to NAVAIR or to bring NAVAIR into other organizations that need our help? The point is that you just identify the things that are good and do them more. Your community also plays a huge role in helping with that self-analysis. How can our community help us recognize ways in which we can grow personally and professionally? To me, one of those ways to do that is to seek variety in the counsel that you seek and that and to whom you give counsel. A while ago, we started talking about network characteristics. And this was honestly as part of my work on Triton and the networks that are required for unmanned aviation and starting to come up with the characteristics that those networks need to have. And those characteristics we determined are reliability, redundancy, resiliency, capacity, and capability. That's for an unmanned comms network, but I think there's some parallels to our human networks too. When we talk about reliability, it's, it's who's holding up their end of the bargain in our community relationships? Am I, am I holding up my end of the bargain in my relationships? And back to the calendar, does my calendar allow me to be a reliable community member? For redundancy, it's, it's more of do, do I have more than a handful of people that I interact with, that I listen to, or that I talk to? As part of our changes that we're aiming to make in PMA 242, we're undergoing a, a reorganization, and that's not uncommon within a program office. But one of the things that it really brought to light was the sheer volume of personnel in our organization that are five years or less away from retirement. That's not unique to our program office at all. That's not unique to NAVAIR. That's, that's how it is in in general, right? So how are we 
allowing those folks to move on with their lives and not have the work that they've been doing be undone by their absence? How are we growing the folks? How are we growing the skills in people that are going to have to do that work when they move on? With resiliency, to me, this is about how we handle disagreements or differences of opinion. We need to be able to listen to what other people have to say in a thoughtful manner and be able to respectfully disagree on, a, on both technical and non-technical fronts alike. And that really leads into the capacity issue that we need to address. And that's the cornerstones of inclusion and diversity. And I'm certain that that's another podcast in and of itself. But when you include people who are unlike you and who think differently from you and you can have that resilient conversation with them, that increases your capacity definitively because it brings in all of their network too. And the capability parts more, what do I do with those connections that I have? Am I sharing that opportunity with other people that I know? Is it, hey, who do I need to be talking to? That was one of Emerald Chebby's things when I was leaving his office was, all right, you've come to talk to me. Bring me more people to talk to. And I can only imagine your time spent with Triton was the opportunity to really expand your community. That was another example of folks taking a chance on me and letting me do something that was very different. At the time that I was considering the move from VX31 into what my next role, my first job as an AEDO was going to be, Captain Klein Timber was actually the detailer at the time, and I called him up to discuss what my options might be. And I told him, you know, I've been doing F-18 software for the past four years. I really want to try something different. Can I go work on helos? Can I go work on unmanned aircraft? And he helped me set up a conversation with the PM at PMA 262 at the time, Captain Dan Mackin. I probably couldn't have filled a sentence with what I knew about maritime ISR prior to that conversation with Captain Mackin. But after we'd been talking for about you know, 30, 45 minutes, I already knew a great deal more about the Navy than I did before. And it was really exciting. And he seemed excited to bring someone in to his team that had a different background than its core group. Most of that mission is comprised of P3, P8, EP3 folks, but I was not that. I was F-18s. And it ended up being really fun because I learned a ton about a mission that I really knew nothing about. And I think that I was able to contribute differently to that program office than other folks with a different background might have been able to. Admiral Chebby said it a couple of times that ducks choose ducks. And sometimes the ducks choose rabbits or baboons or whatever. And that ends up being really beneficial because now when you have that actual diverse experience in your office, you're having those conversations all the time, it changes how you think about a problem. Having spent three years surrounded by the maritime ISR mission, I think about missiles and weapons a little bit differently now. 
And I'm really grateful for that experience, that vote of confidence that I got from from Captain Klein and Captain Mackin to go try something totally different. Absolutely. And and you certainly both learned from each other. And that is how we grow as an organization, sharing that knowledge, learning from each other. I want to go back to the start of our conversation. In your opinion, how does appreciative inquiry help us deliver capability at a cost we can afford? So in the end, we can't afford to fail. That, that's what we can't afford. We have to develop an intentional culture and that drives us towards world-class execution. To me, world-class execution is providing an optimal capability per dollar. The two of the three largest allocation of money is actually going towards manpower. What a small group of folks and I here have been trying to figure out is how Navair should wield that info. And one of the areas that we're starting to go towards is that, you know, the Navy at large can pay fewer people, but not that many fewer, not, not that big of a change. The Navy really can't pay those people less, and, and we shouldn't. But what we can control is the work that those people do. And that's why cultural intent and workforce development are the areas that we ought to be advocating for the most. If we really want to talk about cost, then I would say we need to look at the return on investment we're getting on our biggest investment, our people. Are people doing the work that we need them to do, and are they using their modern brains to do it? Absolutely. It's all about investing in our people. Lieutenant Commander Leibart, thank you so much for joining us today, for teaching us about the modern brain and how reflection and critical thinking helps us solve problems and deliver outcomes to the fleet. I encourage everyone to practice appreciative inquiry. There's so much value in taking a strengths-based approach to create change, not just on a personal level, but across our organizational community. If you want to hear more examples of behaviors for a winning culture, check out the Airwaves podcast on all your favorite listening apps. And that's it for this edition of Airwaves. Thanks for listening.